Welcome to the Dermalorian Podcast from the Dermatology Education Foundation. We're so glad you've joined us for season two and are excited to launch a new season full of fresh insights and practical tips. When it comes to inflammatory skin disease, every case is different and every case can teach a lesson. Speaking at the in-person DEF Biologic and Small Molecule NPPA CME Bootcamp in Dallas this fall, faculty members shared a wealth of tips based on consideration of a single case. Faculty were dermatologists Dr. April Armstrong and Dr. David Cohen, DEF founder, dermatology nurse practitioner Joe Gorelick, and dermatology physician assistant and DEF advisory board member Kara Gooding. She introduced the case of James, a 42-year-old man with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis who was being treated with secukinumab. And he was completely clear until about three months ago. Now his BSA is about 10%, and he has stubborn plaques on his hands, back, and scalp that are unresponsive to high-potency topical steroids, reflumolast 0.3 cream to Pinaroff 1% cream. His BSA originally was 30%. He's a typical psoriasis patient. He's obese, he smokes, and he's otherwise, his past medical history is unremarkable. He's frustrated by the plaques and he wants to discuss other treatment options. His PSA is well controlled. And he's previously tried and failed phototherapy, adalimumab, etanercept, and ustekinumab. So a couple questions. One, is this a primary or a secondary failure? And then I want to answer that first. Yeah, what do we think? Is he a primary or secondary failure? Secondary, right, because he had been well controlled for 24 months and then it started to kind of creep back up, although it seems like pretty rap more rapid than I would have imagined. But, um, and then uh, would you consider dose escalation or switching? Right, so that's a, that's a great question, right? So we have, we have a few choices. We could dose escalate. Um, he is obese, which actually makes me think likely he will resp respond to the dose escalation um, or switching to a different biologic or small molecule. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll give my kind of thoughts on this. And um, so his PSA is well controlled on on uh, segikinumab here. So it's not unreasonable to dose escalate him to see how he does, especially he had responded to segikinumab before. And um, the study I mentioned earlier in the morning actually looked that, at the exact type of patient and noted that if you dose escalated them to maintenance of 300 milligrams every other week, you can get a large increase in delta uh, benefit from, from that. So, um, so if you, and the insurance approves it, you can probably do so. Let's say if it doesn't approve the dose escalation, then I probably, given his PSA had been well controlled on IL-17 inhibitor, maybe switched him to another IL-17 inhibitor, maybe ixekizumab, for example, in this case. Um, Small molecule, I would consider that maybe as an addition if I wanted to, um, to the uh, whichever biologic you ultimately decide. Uh, if, if after observing him on that, either escalated dose of secukinumab or a new biologic for a while, if you notice still no improvement, then potentially consider adding the small molecule. Um, so just some of my thoughts in that area. Yeah. <clears throat> So I, I would 
uh, I agree. So I would, number one, dose escalate straight away. Now, that's in a, you know, a glass castle, right? I've got a refrigerator full of samples. So I'm going to give him those samples and say, okay, instead of every, every fourth Thursday, you're going to give yourself um, the injections every other Thursday. So that's the dose escalation, increasing the dose over time. But I'm also then going to ask my rep to contact my MSL and get me some literature that I can then provide to the insurance companies. So when I see this patient back after a couple months and he's improved on this escalated dose, that when I submit showing um, improvement, decreased body surface area, um, he went from a moderate down to a clear, almost clear, documented in my chart, and I submit some literature that shows that dose escalation is effective and safe, that's going to hopefully help me get it approved so that he can stay on dose escalation because we can't keep him on samples forever. So the practical component, I think, is smart. Um, and because the, the psoriatic arthritis is controlled, that's why I would stay in the same, with the exact same drug um, and try escalation as opposed to changing. Yeah, I think the best use of the samples is to, to do dose escalation. It's much harder to argue the point that they've cleared on dose escalation than there's the theory that they'll improve on dose escalation. And, uh, you know, I think when you switch classes and you have good joint control, you do take a higher risk that you might not have the joint control. You know, you, you'll hear over time, you'll hear, um, you know, this drug did great for my joints, but not so good on my skin. And then I switched to this other class and my skin cleared, but my joints didn't feel so good. So if I'm, if he was doing okay, I would dose escalate. It would take a lot to add a small molecule for me. He, we still have a lot of traps to run before I'm going to add a second drug as opposed to switching. And so you have, I think ICSI would be the, the next one. I don't think there was a contraindication for him to go on bradaliumab if we needed it, right? And bradaliumab's dosed every two weeks, so that helps too, mm -hmm. right? And, and it's a very effective drug. It's just got a, you know, a higher bar to get it. You need to, you know, clear that REMS program and be signed up for it, but... Uh, once that you get past that, it's pretty effective. Agreed. Yeah, and, and Broda, Brodalumab, you know, when you look at these uh, analyses that compare the different biologics, you know, directly or indirectly, consistently comes up as among, like, the top four biologics. It's always there. I think it's a little underutilized, right, um, due to its um, uh, label uh, and the need for rem program, but you only need to sign up once as a, as a provider, and then, then you're basically set, so. And um, access. I think that it, it yes. didn't have the commercial support that we wanted initially, and you couldn't use it first line, um, but as a backup, think of that, uh, that, that drug is very uh, effective in this and safe in this patient population. Any questions? Before we move on, I think they're having a food coma. Yeah, no, the creme <laughs> and that chocolate thing almost put me to sleep. Yeah. The peanut butter, peanut butter oh, cookie was delicious. Yeah. They were Amazing. warm. And... <laughs> All right. All right, we're 
we're going to move into the next se section, which is populations of special interests. So for pediatric patients, we have four biologics that are available. So etanercept, ustekinumab, ixikizumab, and secukinumab. I'm not going to read all of this if you want to take a, yep, I see cameras coming out. That's great. This is also in the, in the cheat sheet as well. So you do not have to memorize this because, as Dr. Cohen said, no one can memorize and, and you don't have to know these. You have a reference where you can look them up. But you have a Tanercept, which is down to the age of four, and then the other three, which can be utilized down to the age of six. And you can see the different dosing schedules that are available. And then just before we move on, I, I just, it's so important to realize, you know, most of the time skin's going to come, skin disease is going to come before joints. Always ask about joints as people age, but the pediatric population that has nail involvement and, and scalp involvement has a much higher risk of developing joint disease. So it's important that these patients be adequately treated and the systemic inflammation be addressed systemically before uh, you have any progression of joint disease. Yeah, I, there's a couple of points I, I, I thought on this. One is um, never waste the pediatric indication when discussing a drug with an adult, right? That, that, not, the, not the parent. I meant the adult that may be a little hesitant to go on a drug when they're 40 and 50 and 70 years old. And, and letting them know, like, this was tested in little kids. Like, so I write this for six-year-olds. And that's amazingly reassuring for people, right? Because there really is a lot of work that you have to, that, that is hard to get, that label. And it really requires uh, uh, just a, a whole bunch of work. Two, and I'd be curious what you guys think is, you know, a, an eight-year-old with moderate to severe psoriasis, um, it, he, they, they have some issues they're going to have to deal with. That is not someone untreated who might expect to have a normal life expectancy or a normal anything resembling a normal quality of life into adulthood. Uh, th their joint disease can be terrible. Their risk of early cardiovascular death is high. And you know, talking to parents about injecting a drug into their little kid for a skin problems seems so foreign and imbalance to them and you know I think you do have to explain some of the epidemiologic risks associated with leaving things alone now when you were having a conversation with a patient that had moderate to severe disease in the 1990s or 80s or early 2000 and it was cyclosporin and you could go maybe a year or two because you're really going to risk renal failure or kidney or, or um, methotrexate with cirrhosis, pulmonary fibrosis, bone marrow suppression. It was a completely legitimate conversation to say, is my life being put at risk from the drug versus the disease? And back then, we didn't know the disease shortened people's lives and gave them heart attacks. So it was all about the drug risk. Now the conversation cannot be like, I think I'm just going to let the disease ride because I'm afraid of the drug. It's like, no, you are you have a load of trouble associated with this problem, and not treating has real consequences that go far beyond the appearance of this thing. So you have to deal with it, and the risks associated with the treatment are so small compared to the real risks of the disease. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. We pause for the Dermalorian Derm Decoder. 
Many NPs and PAs working in dermatology are interested in providing aesthetic treatments, but finding the right training can be a challenge. In a recent Dermalorian webinar, Mary Beth Hagen, founder of Titan Aesthetic Consulting, shared her insights. For all of you who are existing dermatology nurse practitioners or physician assistants, you have some things if you want to add aesthetics to your practice that might make it a little bit easier for you than the average provider who is not within a dermatology practice. You already have a job. Um, you may and probably already have patient demand in your existing practice. You may have in-clinic mentors that you can work with and that can help you be able to um, answer questions and study and learn and give you resources. And the other thing is, is that the other thing is there, there might be dermatologist procedure resistance. And what I mean to that is there may be opportunities for um, patients to be able to do some more cash medicine or some more things that, that you could offer that maybe they, they, maybe somebody doesn't want to try Accutane, but they're quite willing to look at um, maybe popping up some of the scars with a dermal filler. Okay. So there may be some different opportunities that you may have in an existing dermatology practice. There also may be some things that might be a little challenging when you have a full-time job, you know, really going back and relearning facial anatomy from an injectable standpoint, there's a lot to learn there. Um, there are so many products, you know, when Joe started, when I started in this, you know, there was one filler. I mean, it was wrestling. Juvederm wasn't out yet. You know, you had um, Botox cosmetic, Disport wasn't out yet. I used to joke, it was the, the wrestling rep, the Botox rep and the Obagi rep and then all the laser people. And you never knew them because once they sold something, they never showed up again. No, I'm joking. So <laughs> old jokes, but you know, what we're looking at now is there's so many more products and to integrate cash procedures with the existing therapeutic procedures. It may be a learning opportunity, not only for you, but for some people in, within the office as well. And then learning to sell sometimes is challenging. And we, we talk a little bit at Titan about how there is truly a difference between selling and educating, because educating is making sure that you have all that information for the patient, but the patient still has to buy or agree to pay for some of these aesthetic products that are cash only. And so it's a different education and selling process and communication process with the patient. So I just kind of want to think through some of the things that, that might be easy for you and some of the things that might be a bit more challenging. And one of the things that seems to constantly be challenging for anybody out there who wants to learn something new is how do you evaluate what training options are available? And if any of you guys have ever Googled Botox training or aesthetic injectable training or aesthetic training, there are four companies that come up right away. Three of the four are owned by non medical providers. Um, and it's pretty interesting to see what they offer, how they sell and what they charge. And so what we look at within Titan is trying to offer a little bit of um, credentialing for and, and evaluating for you. And one of the things that we really try to encourage people to look at is what are the credentials of the person who is going to train you? And I don't just mean, are they a doctor? Are they an MP? Are they a PA? Are they an RN? What is their credentials? What are their credentials in terms of how long have they been doing this? Where have they trained? Are they a trainer for a large national organization? Have they studied and done this specialty for many years? 
Because the thing that scares me right now is how many people will go to these weekend training courses and then come home and six weeks later, they've decided they're running their own training company. So really ask those questions before you decide to get training to make sure that whoever is going to be leading the training, writing the curriculum really has the background and the expertise to be able to do it safely and do it well. You're listening to the Dermalorian podcast from the Dermatology Education Foundation. Let's get back to the conversation with the biologic and small molecule bootcamp faculty as Dr. Armstrong discusses risks of untreated inflammatory skin diseases. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. Uh, I, I would say there's oftentimes a lot of hesitation actually for the parent to start their child on a biologic, right? rightfully so. It's, it's scary, right? Um, and so I see it, it's something that I, I kind of work on you know, over some visits. We know that younger kids are at, you know, pe- people who, it, who are younger, who have moderate to severe psoriasis are, are at the greatest risk for developing depression and suicidality later on. So, um, so I, I, you know, I tell the parents, you know, um, it's really important that we address this because, you know, we, we talk a lot about molecular scar of uh, psoriasis, but, you know, what about the mental scarring, you know, that the child is, experiencing. So I actually try to, and I say, you know, if this was my child, this is what I would do. And they, you know, parents are different and they're, they, I say, but don't worry, I don't want to, you know, push anything onto you. But I do think, you know, this may be something your child could benefit from. Let me see you in two, three months. Let's, you know, see what you think. And then if you have any questions, you know, here's some literature and then, but, you know, bring all your questions back. Because if we don't address their concerns, they, they would not go on. But I can say the vast majority of kids who have gone on these biologics, their parents are typically so thankful afterwards, right? They're like, oh my gosh, you know, this really changed their lives. And, and part of, uh, of that discussion is a benefit-risk discussion um, that's very important. And it takes a little while, but I, I do have to say the reward is, is tremendous. Yeah. And, and the one thing that they often have time, they have, uh, they have is how long will my child stay on this medicine, right? Very good question. We don't have a good answer at this time right now. But what I would say is, you know, let's get your child completely clear, right, or in good control. And let's see, you know, then we can think about potentially, you know, some customization. You know, obviously this, is, this will be off-label. Um, and then see, you know, what may be the minimal amount of drug that your child needs to maintain that, that response. Um, and I say, you know, if your child still have a little bit, you know, left, that means that we probably still have not achieved that goal uh, before we can start the conversation about, uh, about weaning. Um, and I say, you know, their psoriasis will tell us, you know, we can see it on the skin, so. Can I just bring up one other question for the, for the panel? And it's been my experience that the sooner you can get someone on a systemic drug for psoriasis from the point of onset of disease, it seems the easier to control and the more likely I might get a durable response even post stopping the drug. Um, and I think waiting too long and being too patient is a, is a problem. I, I, I don't like waiting too long. Of course, if it's a gut tape flare, you know, and you're gonna get them over that, that's one thing. But you know, the longer you wait, I think the harder they become to treat and they sometimes degrade and they start gaining weight and they start withdrawing socially. I think even the strongest personality cannot get past 
30, 40% total body surface area involving their face and groin. That's a really tough thing. And when you're 18 and 20, that's really hard. And those are peak times people get psoriasis. Yeah, a uh, few, few thoughts on this. Um, number one is uh, there's this concept of cumulative um, life impairment. Uh, what that means is that you know a person may be able to deal with like what you know these annoyances, but it, but if it's a chronic disease, basically like it adds up over time, and so our our ability to cope with either chronic disease or other stressors in life, you know, there's this balance. And no matter how strong you are, if you kind of over a long period of time, as they creep up as a stressors in this case, psoriasis is there, and as that creep up, your, your ability to cope with them, ultimately, we all have a limit, right? It's, it's kind of like, you know, you go to work, there's, I mean, totally different example, but let's say you go to work and there's a lot of congestion, right, LA traffic, you're late, and then suddenly you get a flat tire, and then, you know, like, someone spills coffee, you know, like, up to a point, even the most patient person just, like, like, this is terrible. But you imagine- about going postal at a certain point. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, um, so, but getting to the point is that um, for people who have psoriasis at a younger age, that's why it's so important to intervene earlier. Um, and also there's rationale to intervene earlier from a scientific point of view. Um, so there are these uh, resonant memory T cells, which, um, which kind of remembers where your psoriasis plaques are, right? So they're like, okay, we always home there, we always home there. And then people who've had a long, uh, over a period of time, they actually have different, start to have different populations, you know, affect different areas. So if, you, if you're able to intervene early, it shows that you know, the duration of diseases really matters because um, it's, it's easier to treat when they only had a disease for a certain period of time, given the same severity. So if you had one person come to you with 30%, the other person come to you with 30% BSA, one person had it for one year, the other person had it for 12 years, I, and then studies have shown that the person who had it for one year, it's much easier to treat at that stage. That's the point. Yeah, yeah because there hasn't been this immunologic evolution. Um, yeah, so. Don't, don't give the pound tub of triamcinolone as a long-term solution. You give the tub of triamcinolone waiting for the PA to clear. Speaking of stress, prescribers of isotretinoin may find that the process will become less stressful soon. For this episode's Dermalorian clinical clip, Here's an update on the iPledge Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy Program, or REMS, for isotretinoin prescribing. Last month, the FDA ordered the Isotretinoin Product Manufacturers Group, or IPMG, to institute changes to the iPledge program. Updates include removal of the 19-day lockout for patients if they do not obtain isotretinoin within the first seven-day prescription window. Additionally, after initial enrollment, patients who cannot become pregnant do not require ongoing counseling on fetal exposure risk. The FDA is also making the use of home pregnancy testing for patients during and after isotretinoin treatment a permanent part of the iPledge monitoring. IPMG has 180 days from the date of the FDA letter to implement these and other mandated changes. That's it for this edition of the Dermalorian Podcast from the Dermatology Education Foundation. Catch up on Season 1 anywhere you listen to podcasts, 
and be sure to tell your colleagues to tune in too. Thanks for joining us.